News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I feel like this song could be Scott Shentz's theme song, actually. You have your own way to rock, Scott. You have your own way to roll. Do do you think that? What do you think about me? Yeah, I think you're quite unique. This would be a good theme song for you. That, I, I take that as a compliment. It is a compliment. Thank you. I... It's interesting because then I like I don't mind sharing this. I try to model so much of my behavior after people that I admire and I'm not just like blowing so you're one of those people, Simmy. Like oh, I, that I so now t- I'm scared. Don't <laughs> <laughs> you, you think that what I'm projecting I'm getting from you? I, some no. of some of the things that I try to apply to my professional life and my attempts to like, you know, work in, in huh. this industry, I glean from from That's you and so some of the other people here. Lovely at the station. that you say that because sure, yeah. I, I Scott, you know, you've been here for a while now, but I always think Boy, I should try to be more like Scott. Oh, my gosh. Scott is so <laughs> optimistic and positive, and I'm always like, no, the worst is going to happen. I am the glass, like, I am in a lot of things, the glass half-empty person, right? But you are not, so it's good that we balance each other out that way. Sure, yeah, and, you know, in some ways, there are two sides to every coin. It, I set myself up for some disappointment as well, so. <laughs> and yet, that's... you keep yourself going. You <laughs> jump right back up and keep going. Let's talk about holiday spending this season. I can't believe the holidays, like, we're talking about this now, yeah. but even for me, I was thinking last weekend, you know... I think Black Friday sales, I'd like to, like, I was going to buy something. There was something I had to get, and I thought I might wait until. I see what's going on with Black Friday. Which I think is what a lot of people are doing. And this, I don't think this is going to come as a surprise to anybody, but Deloitte, one of these big you know, research companies, uh, has released a new survey where they have found, again, not surprisingly, that Canadians are planning on spending significantly less than we have over the last five years on holiday spending. And it's not because we're making any less money. It's just because everything has gotten so expensive. Everyone is afraid of recession and mortgage payment hikes and uh, cost of groceries, cost of all of these things people are taking into consideration. And uh, instead of spending, I'll give you the numbers here, around $1,700 a year on holiday spending, the forecast is to be around $1,300 a year. So that's a pretty big, you know, those num- those are kind of, I rounded those numbers, but from $1,700 down to $1,300, that's a pretty big chunk of money held back from holiday spending. Well, how can we not hold that well, back yeah, given totally. what is happening out there. Everything is so expensive. I This doesn't surprise me at all. And I my question about this is how are retailers going to react to this? Well, totally. I mean, it's like, oh, we're not making as much as we forecasted. So what can we do? Fire a bunch of employees and raise prices. You know, and I'm not saying that that's what always happens when companies don't make as much money as they forecast to make, but it does happen in certain economic circles. And just a little cherry on top with all of this data, uh, 40% is the number that we have decreased our charitable giving. You know, so who takes it the hardest when things like this happen? It's that extra little bit. You know, we like to shop and take care of our loved ones and go out and have a good time and stuff. And then you want to put a little bit of money in the kettle or, you know, take care of some of the organizations that are close to your heart. Those are some of the first things that get cut. Oh, and that's so sad. I was speaking to someone yesterday with a local organization uh, where they work with people who need help, just whether it's like, you know, helping them fill out forms, helping them get support. They do. They deal with a lot of um, domestic violence situations. And, and they told me that since the pandemic has ended, they have seen 
just an explosion in numbers of people who need their assistance. And this is just a local, it's out in Delta. Mm-hmm. And there's only there's the one organization that does this out there. And they're like quadrupling their numbers. They're seeing so many more people come in and they expect it's going to be worse during the holidays. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, I had a thought though, Simi, because my family did this once. And, I, you know, so you see these numbers and these statistics and stuff and you think, well, what can you do about it? And trying to, you know, put it through that positivity filter that we were talking about earlier. Right. I'm like, well, why don't we just like rethink Christmas and instead of like here, like here's an idea that my family did once. Instead of buying gifts for everyone, the rule was that you had to make the gift. We had that rule in my family one year and we all made gifts for each other. We drew names out of the hat for the person that you would have to have to buy for or, or make a gift for. And we made gifts and it could be anything. You just weren't allowed to spend money on it. And it ended up being a really nice little Christmas. I love that. That's very sweet. You could just do the secret Santa thing though, too. You could also just right. pick the person, like buy one, one gift yeah, and be, and that's it. Totally. That Like there are ways, there are ways to sort of um, keep the magic of Christmas without the spending that is so closely tied to it. You if know? ever there was a way, I feel like this is the year that people are going to find that way to do it. We should ask people about this Good too, idea. that if they're yeah. already thinking, if you're looking ahead and thinking, you know what, we can't afford to do Christmas the way we have done in years past or the holiday. I know Hanukkah ends, I think on December 15th this year too. So if you can't afford to do the holidays the way you have done in the past, what changes are you making? Have you talked about this in your family? Fewer presents, maybe secret Santa gift exchange. What's it going to be? Even groceries. Think about that. Even hosting that holiday dinner this year. Huge. Hugely expensive, right? So let's, I made uh, my family eat leftovers for like six days. I love that. We spent a whole week eating whatever I spent on the Thanksgiving dinner. That's, that's the way that's it's going to be But for that's Christmas. what you need to do. That's, that's what right. we need to do. Absolutely. So let's hear from people on that. Simi at cknw.com. Weigh in with that. You can also call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. Scott, thank you. Mm-hmm. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us on this Wednesday morning to check in with Vaughn Palmer, find out what's going on. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And may I just say that this Surrey policing storyline is just a gift that keeps on giving for us. Uh, On this spot in the morning, there's something fascinating in you almost every day. And you know who else thinks that and says thank you for this story? Our lawyers, Vaughn, lawyers, (laughs) because they're making good money off this. Oh, and consultants too, you know. Bob Mackin this week broke the story of what the New Democrats are paying former head of the public service, Jessica McDonald, to do the government's side of the transition. She's got a contract worth, hang on, folks. Half a million dollars over two years. So when the New Democrats whine about what Surrey's costing, uh, they're not slouches at shoveling the money out the door either. Uh, No kidding. Okay. And that's not even counting what Surrey, the city of Surrey is. So Surrey taxpayers, you're paying twice because you're paying those provincial fees. And then you're also going to pay the city ones. In fairness, provincial taxpayers are paying twice too. That's true. The provincial government and the provincial government, Simi, as you know, has put up $150 million as a bribe to get Surrey to go ahead. And the premier said yesterday, you know, if you need more money, we're here. Like, I, I, I heard that. It was at a press conference yesterday with the premier. And he said, yeah, yeah, you know, if, it, if it's money, uh, well, you know, uh, We've got money here in Victoria. We can sit and talk about that. 
you know, you speculated a little while ago, Simi, that maybe all the legal action that Surrey was mounting was just to get a better deal out of Victoria. It's entirely possible that's what they were doing. Is it? Or, like, I'm, I think that's an option. I think if they wanted to, they could play hardball and get more money. I'm afraid that they're going to play the hardball, spend the money, and that they're not actually out for the more money. They really want to stop the thing. So either way, yeah, well, it's just going to be more money. Uh, that could be. But look, uh, the NDP's whole strategy of dealing with Surrey publicly and privately, you know, they go, oh, Brenda Locke doesn't know what she's doing. She hasn't got a legal leg to stand on. And the government has claimed all along that it had the legal authority to do what it did out there. And the government's claimed all along that, you know, $150 million is it. Take it or leave it. Well, the government blinked twice this week. First of all, the New Democrats brought in legislation to allow them to do what they did which tells me that somebody in the bureaucracy realized that maybe their powers weren't as clear as they thought they were. And then yesterday, the premier says, well, you know, we could come up with a little bit more money if that's what it takes. So they blinked on that as well. So, you know, the the whole NDP strategy on this thing is to dismiss Brenda Locke as not having any legal authority and frankly being a bit of a loony. And yet it looks to me like she's outmaneuvered them so far. Uh, let's talk about this, uh, the, the the new legislation that yeah. Mike Farnworth has introduced here, because he's talking about all the powers that it gives him, but some of this, like, didn't he already have some of these powers? Uh, that's what he claimed. You know, the, you go back to July and every session that Farnworth had since then, he said he was absolutely sure back in July that under the existing police act, the province had the power to order Surrey to stop with the plan to go back to the RCMP and to proceed with the standalone Surrey policing service. Well, you look at that bill that Farnworth tabled in the House on Monday, and it says that the Surrey transition to the standalone police service is going ahead and the province has the power to cancel Surrey's contract with the RCMP. Well, if the government had the legal authority that it claimed back in July, why does it need this retroactive legislation? I say, I look at that and I go, well, you know, maybe somebody after looking at Surrey's legal position, somebody in the government said, hmm, you know what? Maybe we do need clearer legal powers to do this. Maybe we better make sure and head off any court action. So, you know, they haven't been as straight as they claim to be. Going back to July, uh, I think this tells me that they realized they didn't have the clear-cut legal authority to do what they wanted to do out in Surrey, and now they've given themselves it. And, you know, David Eby yesterday is asked about all this, and he says to Surrey, give it up, stop the challenge you're going to lose in court. Well, you know... I don't know. I know David Reeby's a lawyer and all that, but uh, he's surely got enough experience in the legal system that you should never predict what a court is going to do until the court has spoken. So, you know, there is a, I think there's a little anxiety in the government. Uh, they're trying to stare down Surrey on this. And maybe that's why the premier's offering more money as well. 
But uh, this thing's not over. <laughs> that's that's it. That's one thing we can be sure of. You and I are going to talk about this again. Ugh, we're going to talk about it a lot. It feels like, and I I just feel like this is a very expensive game of chicken uh, for taxpayers out there. Expensive game of chicken, and and Simi, it is about who is going to take the political blame for what this costs. That, at the end of the day, is what both sides have in the back of their mind. Uh, Brenda Locke is trying to make sure that if Victoria forces Surrey to go ahead, that she can say to Surrey ratepayers when the tax bills come in, don't blame me. This wasn't my plan. This is Mike Farnworth's plan. And the New Democrats are trying to provide themselves with cover for next year's election because they face the voters in Surrey before Brenda Locke does. They want to make sure that there is no political fallout for the seven NDP MLAs in Surrey, four of whom are cabinet ministers. Talking with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Now, it sounds like Premier David Eby had quite a bit to say yesterday, Vaughn, including about the short-term rental legislation. Yeah, so the short-term rental bill tabled Monday morning in the legislature introduced. Uh, Bill runs about 28 pages, however... About eight of those pages are simply the government giving itself the power to make regulations down the road. So we're not 100% sure how this thing is going to work. Uh, I think the initial reaction was if it stops these, uh, you know, your whole four-unit house or your whole floor of a condo project, and there's one of these in the Vancouver Sun today, your whole floor of a condo project is being rented out at Airbnb, that's not what the original idea of Airbnb was. And the provincial government's going to stop that. From now on, uh, you're going to be able to still have uh, property listed for vacation rental short term, but it's going to have to be your your principal residence, so where you live and you're vacating it to rent it out for a bit, or you're allowed one other property. Uh, So you could have a basement suite, or you could have uh, a laneway house. And that's the uh, government's response to the concern that you and I talked about earlier in the week, which is, you know, what if you got your house and uh, you put in a basement suite to help pay your mortgage and you need the Airbnb revenue to do that because it pays better than short-term rental. So the government, the long-term rental. So the government said, okay, those, those we're going to protect and we're also going to protect resort municipalities, and we're going to protect um, communities with less than 10,000 people. So that was the the government's attempt to head off the objections. I would say the big objection that is still out there is the impact on tourism in major cities. An awful lot of people use Airbnb, including the premier admits it himself, uh, as a vacation, a tourist place, They take an Airbnb unit and that's their holiday in the community. So what happens? Um, The premier is a lot of places. Vancouver is one of them, Simi. They have a shortage of hotels and hotels are very expensive. And the premier's response on all this is, well, you know, uh, the hotel industry should go out and build a bunch of hotels. Um, that's easier said with, than done. Like that, is... he's, he's generous with tax dollars, and he's generous with other people's money. I, I mean, if if you know, I, 
I, I don't run a hotel business and I wouldn't try to guess what they're going to do, but I'm thinking maybe the hotel business will in the long run say the market is better for building a new hotel, uh, buying the land, uh, getting a design, uh, steering it through city council, getting your financing in order. But I don't know as though they're going to rush right into that just because of a piece of legislation before the House, especially, especially when the premier himself, Simi, is unable to predict how many units this legislation will add to the supply of long-term rental housing, how many units it will remove from the short-term Airbnb-type rentals. Right. And, and this is not a new situation, not for the city of Vancouver anyway. We we know that we're short hotel rooms and we've got FIFA coming here, right? We've got the World Cup coming. Like this is this is the problem that we've been dealing with. It can't be fixed with just one piece of legislation. That's true. And another thing, I'm sort of looking up and down the West Coast and looking at a common problem. So San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle and Vancouver all to some degree have a problem which is their downtowns have a bad reputation. Uh, The streets aren't safe, Uh, random attacks, violence, homeless encampments. And I'm sort of wondering if, you know, we've, we've focused on Airbnb as well. It's cheaper and more convenient for you if you're traveling, you've got a place to keep your stuff and all that. I'm wondering as well if one reason why people are searching out Airbnb Airbnb places away from downtown is because downtowns aren't very inviting anymore. And the hotel operators are going to look at that. They're going to say, my guess is, what are you guys going to do about public safety downtown? Everybody knows the horror stories. So I don't know if this is going to work. And as I said, I thought the most interesting answer David Eby gave when he was asked about this legislation, a reporter said, "Okay, give us some numbers by which we can judge whether or not this is successful. And the premier said, well, we have a report from McGill that says there are 16,000 units uh, in B.C., mostly in Vancouver, that are Uh, Long, short term right now, that should be long term. So 16,000 units. And he said, Airbnb says they're zero. So what's going to happen somewhere between that? That's not exactly the sort of take it to your bank prediction you're going to need to decide to go out and build a hotel. So I I think this thing is well-intentioned. It's popular. It may help solve the problem. But I also say, let's wait and see if a year from now, it's actually dumped a whole bunch of units onto the long-term rental market. That is the question, right? Okay, well, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, driving or walking around and looking at a holiday light display is so lovely in the month of December, isn't it? Because some people really go all out. It just helps kind of put you in a better mood. So nice. Well, one neighborhood is going to be darker than usual this year after the organizers of the annual Christmas in Williams Park display in the township of Langley received word from the township saying they would no longer support the event. So what happened here? Let's find out. Barbara Sharp is with us now, president of the Christmas in Williams Park Society. Barbara, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, Barbara, first of all, how big is this light display? Tell me about it. Well, it's, um, it's Williams Park is quite a large park. You can actually drive around the upper part of the park. So we do the light up in the entire upper portion 
of the park so people can drive around and stay dry in the rain. <laughs> so um, it's been going on 32 years. This would be its 33rd year. And um, so we it's a big deal. Uh, have... It's a big deal. We had 25,000 people through it last year. Wow. Okay, so it's been going on for mm-hmm. a very long time. And so what kind of support did you normally get from the Township of Langley? Well, it, it's, it's, it's varied, um, but we've always, always had staff support. I mean, myself, I actually first became involved about 10, 11 years ago when I answered an ad in the local paper for volunteers that was put out there by the Township of Langley. So they weren't asking for board members. They were asking for volunteers because they actually ran the event. And so it's kind of morphed over the years, and we've become a society because the township requested we do that. So we manage all the the donations, buying the lights, you know, sourcing things out, going on the marketplace, all those different things that you do to try to save some money to get nice, you know, decorations and lights right. for people so um well then i got i started getting emails from people about this actually the other day barbara so so what happened <laughs> well on the 11th of september just out of the blue literally i received a letter from uh, the operations department in langley the township and um it had copied in mayor and council but it was to me saying you know thank you for your involvement over the last years but we will no longer be supporting the event and i was just gobsmacked <laughs> I was like, what? So just a letter? Like not even a phone call? Come on in, let's talk nothing, about this? Just just a letter, which is really pretty insulting. And generally, like if you look at last year, for example, there was about seven, eight people maybe. All but one was a woman or, or women. And um, they were mostly between the ages of 60 to 75 that ran that event last year. You know, we stood out in like minus 14 degree weather and all the rest of it. And then to be treated like that, just a simple letter after 32 years of a very successful event, it was a shock. Yeah. So, so what was, was their excuse? I trying to find out what happened. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm still not quite sure. You know, I mean, I've heard different reasons. I mean, for example, I heard budgetary. But in fact, I had the mayor on uh, the Facebook page for Christmas in Williams Park Society saying that when somebody asked him, well, could you put on a Christmas event in five weeks for $50,000 or whatever. And he said, absolutely, we have great rec staff. And it, it turns out there's actually a an events sheet that is for the 2023-2024 events. And on the bottom of it, it lists something called New Christmas Light Walk event or something to be decided. And I, it's brand new. So it's obviously something that they've got on the go that they're going to let us go and bring this in. So okay. it can't be about money. I don't right? under, I don't understand that. Then, Like, is it about traffic or like did people no, complain? No, no. What we, happened? We've had a couple of, we had a couple of years where we had a couple of traffic issues on the weekend. The first year it really started was COVID. And we bent over backwards to get that event to, to still run with, you know, Bonnie Henry's directions with COVID and everything else. But because we followed all the rules, put all the plans in, you know, did all the traffic management and stuff, we were able to pull it off for like three weekends. And um, so that sort of created a really big, you know, oh, this event is here, right? Plus, you know, we have other places like, you know, Move 103.5 come out. And so we've been quite successful the last few years. And so the cars have come through. But for the most part, that you know, I get a handful of complaints from the neighborhood because I send letters out to everybody ahead of time to, to contact me if there's an issue, so, you know, we do right. manage it quite well. So what so happens I don't know to... What all this, I don't know what all this flutter is out there about all of a sudden cars are an issue. What um, What happens to all of the, the lights and what happens to your society now? 
Well, we're really hoping that, because um, I'm going to make a presentation on Monday afternoon at 1.30, October the 23rd, in front of the Township Council. And uh, we're going to ask to have the staff support uh, reinstated. I mean, they took that responsibility a few years ago and said, we will now, from now on, do all the setup and takedown. So any volunteers that had volunteered for that in the past, they're gone now, right? And volunteers are very hard to get because everybody's schedule is busy. And so um, we've they've done a great job, right? right? I mean, the lights in the park look beautiful. If you go on our Facebook page, I did. Right, you'll see some of the light displays. They're just fantastic, right? I did and see so that. I, do, you, do you think, Barbara, then, is this a, if the community doesn't have this, what kind of a loss is that? Oh, it's a big loss. You should see the comments on the Facebook page. I mean, people have been going for, you know, it's been 32 years, right? And people have memories of bringing their kids who are now growing up. I mean, I've had some volunteers come out for like, we, we're there every night for the event itself, the volunteers are. And um, I've had some come out for like the last 10 years. They've been there as long as I have coming out to the event to, you know, stand right. out in that cold and greet people and take any donations that people want. Because th- that's the other thing about the event. Unlike so many of the other Christmas events out there, this one has been run strictly on donations, and it's voluntary. There's no demand right. that you put any money in. People just it's a free event, Barbara. That's what you're telling me. And this time, yeah. like with everything else that's going on out there, this is a free event. I know, I know. Oh, People okay. can afford all these expensive events out there. Exactly. So, well, mean, Barbara, listen. You keep you go to that meeting. You convince <laughs> them, and then you come back here and you tell us that they've changed their mind. Because I think you can tell. I, you can do it. I sure hope so. And okay. I'm with people's support like you and all the people on the Facebook page and stuff. I'm really hopeful that I can. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to help out any way we can because I'd hate to see this go away. But Barbara, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That's Barbara Sharp. Barbara is the president of the Christmas in Williams Park Society. You should check out their Facebook page because the pictures are beautiful. Huge Christmas lights display that they do for 30 plus years in Williams Park out in the township of Langley. And then they've been told suddenly that the township says, yeah, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to help you out with this. And they're devastated. And so we will give you an update on how that goes. We hear about this happening, you know, in places like Vancouver and Surrey, but township of Langley. Come on, people need a nice free event like that to go to. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, turning our attention to the big story of the day, U.S. President Joe Biden has now arrived in Israel for some very high-stakes diplomacy. How consequential is this visit? Well, for more on all of this, we're joined by Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News National. He is in Jerusalem at this hour. Hi, Jeff. Uh, good morning, Simi. Okay, so what is happening with this visit today? What is the mood like there? Uh, the mood is, is very tense here. And I mean, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, is landing in the middle of a conflict, of course, that was made much worse just hours ago after that strike in Gaza that reportedly killed hundreds of people inside a hospital in northern Gaza. And as a result, uh, that event has essentially upended the U.S. president's plan. He is here in Israel right now, meeting with the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, meeting with the Israeli war cabinet. But after that, he was scheduled to cross the border into Amman, Jordan, where he was going to meet with Arab leaders there, all part of his effort to try and turn down the temperature a little bit in this region uh, in hopes of ensuring that this conflict between Israel and Hamas doesn't spiral into a regional war. But after that attack at the hospital late last night, Simi, Uh, That meeting with Joe Biden and Arab leaders in Jordan has been canceled. We're told that they will still be chatting on the phone, but will not be meeting in person. 
dealing a real blow to the U.S. president's agenda here. Okay, so what is the latest that you're hearing about that strike at the Gaza hospital and, and who was responsible? Yeah, so the sun came up on Gaza this morning, revealing the aftermath of that horrific strike. In fact, we've been hearing from a doctor at that hospital, a surgeon, Dr. Hassan Abusita, who Global News has spoken with several times over the past week about the situation there. He was in the hospital last night when it was hit. Uh, and so he believes the death toll is well over 500 people, just describing horrific scenes of bodies decapitated, including children. Uh, he's pointing the finger squarely at Israel, calling this the most advertised crime in history. Quote, it was a massacre by appointment. Uh, for its part, Israel is denying having anything to do with it. The Israeli military actually held a press conference this morning presenting what it says is evidence that shows that the rocket was not fired from Israel, but in fact came from Gaza, from a Palestinian militant group that was shooting at Israel, but that the rocket failed and landed instead, striking a parking lot just next to this hospital, causing the carnage. The Israeli military presented uh, drone footage to support their claim. They also presented an audio recording that they say shows two Hamas operatives discussing the fact that the rocket had failed and landed near the hospital. Of course, we can't independently verify the authenticity of that recording, but a lot of the expert analysis, the independent analysis we're hearing this morning, Simi, uh, is raising questions about whether this could have been an Israeli strike, saying that the damage that we're seeing in those photos just isn't consistent with the type of crater that we would normally expect to see in the ground that would be caused by an Israeli airstrike. Okay, so then, Jeff, what has the reaction been from Gaza and others in the region there? Yeah, we're seeing mass protests. Uh, across the region, across the Arab world, uh, including in the West Bank, not far from here. Uh, of course, uh, Hamas and other Palestinians not buying this line from Israel, pointing to, among other things, the fact that Israel has already killed more than 3,000 civilians in Gaza during its 11-day bombing campaign, um, striking many civilian targets there. So uh, not buying the Israeli line, and uh, clearly, you know, the temperature not going down here. And as I mentioned, U.S. President's visit has been changed now. Uh, and so, you know, the tension here continues, and the desperation in Gaza continues, Simi. That humanitarian corridor is still closed, still no aid getting into that region where it's so desperately needed. Okay, and what about other countries in the area? Like, what has Egypt said about this, about having that humanitarian corridor? What about Lebanon? Like, what are the other countries saying? Yeah, a lot of the other countries and a lot of aid organizations we've heard from are all demanding that aid be allowed into the border from Egypt into the Gaza Strip, uh, basically warning that Gaza is out of time. It is running out, if not already run out, of fuel, food, water, and other supplies. Uh, the situation there is so desperate. So they are saying, though, to the aid organizations and the government in Egypt that they need assurances from Israel that the airstrikes will stop in the southern part of the country to allow aid to get in safely. Israel so far has refused to give those assurances. Uh, and so as a result, that border remains closed and no aid is getting in. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for the update. Thanks, Jimmy. This is Mornings with Simi. The irony of that song is that it puts a smile on people's face when really it's not supposed to. It's about deep frustration with your job, which, hey, I think a lot of people can understand these days. Our Scott Shenz is with us now. You love your job. I do, yeah. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you love your job, I do. too. Yeah, I really love it. Right? We're lucky to do what we do, I think. Yes, I try not to talk about that with my kids because I it, that's not going to happen for everybody. And yeah. that's the sad state of affairs is that a lot of people go to work every day and they don't 
like their job. Right. And we also, I don't think, want our employer to know that we love our job because we want them to live in a state of fear that, you know, anything could happen. They don't and care, they, Scott. they need to retain us. <laughs> they need to retain. Anything could happen, Simi. Sure. Okay. Sure. As is demonstrated by uh, this survey that just came out from EY that discovered that 34% of Canadians are willing to leave their job sometime in the next year. That's how open they are. That's more than a third. That, like, I thought that number was really high. And it has to do with all of these type of things. Like, they don't feel appreciated. They don't get the things that they want, the benefits. Like, work from home had a lot to do with it. And, of course, money was a, was a huge factor. But just this general, like, not feeling of contentment, like, not feeling appreciated. And I wanted to know a little bit more about, like, how, how this is going to change uh, working. Because this is a thing we've been talking about a lot, like, over the last couple of months um, with economy and post-pandemic and all that type of stuff. So I spoke with Daryl Wright. He's a people advisory services department leader at EY, and he's also the head of talent and future of work. And I asked him, like, was he surprised by this number, 34%? Scott, it's not surprising only because we've got a series of data that we've been looking at from 2020 when we started a series of surveys, which we've which we called Work Reimagined, because you could see that coming out of COVID, that employers and employees were seeing things through a totally different lens. Um, and, and certainly as, as early as April 2022, and in fact, in November 21, when we released our data, then we could see that there was a, there was a bit of a disconnect happening around how people identified with their jobs, um, and there was a shift that was happening there. And certainly in in April 2022, um, just short of 50% were willing to leave their jobs in, in the next 12 months. And, and, and a similar, if not lower result, but still startling that, that, that there is a willingness to kind of shift jobs uh, within the next 12 months. So is this because um, people are just generally unhappy? Do they think that there are the grass is greener on the other side? Is this because they feel like they're not making enough money? Like, why Why are we less committed to our employers? Yeah. So, Scott, that's an interesting question. What we have seen as we've, as we've evolved our survey is, is this um, employers view certain things uh, through certain lenses and as much as employees do. Um, and and w- what we've separated the two is there are a number of cyclical forces that are influencing our employees' um, sentiment, drives their approach to the workplace. But I think what's happening for employees is it's, it's more structural. Um, it is stuff like cost of living. Um, there is a big pressure on skills change. And this flexible and remote work is is something that is 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 front and center for a lot of people. Um, so I think what we have seen, and I and I mentioned this in a, in a previous conversation earlier in the week, is um, we have seen more data coming out of organisations. So we have seen a willingness from employers to meet employees where they're at because they're doing more employee listening. There's way more engaging. Empathetic leadership is is front and center of a lot of these people initiatives. But I think employees identify differently now with their, with their work. Um, and they identify more with the skills and the services they provide, more so than I think with the badging and the symbols of the organization because I think remote working tore us away from the workplace that constantly reinforced the symbols and the culture 
And organizations are going to have to work so much harder to attract and retain talent and work harder at their culture to drive engagement. So, yeah, I think there is there is that disconnect. And I think organizations have to work harder now to retain talent. Yeah. And that, to me, at least at, like as a lay person who's not super familiar with these type of things, that to me feels like uh, a good thing, like that we're kind of empowering the workforce as opposed to, uh, I guess, in my perception, it's like, oh, well, the work, the employers, the companies, you know, I work for a great big company. They have the power. They say when I can work and when I can't. And if I'm lucky enough to get the job and I can only earn so much, you know, and this this sort of um, shifting view or shifting sort of focus onto, um, well, I have options and I'm I'm. Um, kind of ch- changing the focus of why I do this and how I do it, uh, it does sort of feel like it's empowering to workers. Absolutely. And I do think, um, you know, I, we, we've seen in uh, the Great Resignation, maybe that was a, a U.S.-based thing, but certainly in Canada, there was a lot of shifting of the deck chairs as, you know, people either got constrained for all this structural forces I mentioned earlier on, and they, and they sought different opportunities and a lot of it. And the study does reveal that um, wages and salary is still the number one reason why uh, people are willing to leave and, 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 and make the shift because um, they know their value of their, of their, um, of their experience because it is still a, a um, skill, you know, it, it, it's, it's a constrained labor market. People know what their value is and uh, they're willing to leverage that. So it is, it is more empowering for employees and it just puts the onus on the employer to make sure that their, their retention and attraction programs are hyper-focused and, 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 and it's, and it's taking into cognizant the data that they have. And, uh, I think it's important that they listen to to what the data is telling them. So you think this number will get uh, better for employees and employers, or do you think that they're go- we're going to see like um, uh, it, it getting worse, like more people becoming less committed to their jobs? Is that thirty four percent going to be higher? Well, in twenty twenty two, it was forty three. Now it's come down I to thirty four. Okay. And what I am what I am seeing what what we what we have seen come out of the pandemic is that employers are way more willing to meet employees where they're at um so there's a focus on empathetic leadership there's a focus on being more compassionate and then there is the focus on looking at uh, managing the risk of of um attraction and retention that's number 1 and 2 for employers they are worried about attraction and retention and that's that's where their focus is going so we are seeing big efforts and focus and investment going into that from the employer's side. So hopefully hopefully it'll either come down or I, I don't think it'll go up um, given what the trend is at the moment. That's Daryl Wright. He's a People Advisory Services Team leader and the head of Future of Work at EY Canada. And again, some of that stuff that he was saying there at the end, Simi, employers focused on retention. Okay, here's, here's my um, bugaboo with employers right now is that they'll tell, oh, it's so hard to find people. Oh, it's so hard. But what they're looking for are fully qualified people to do the job that they need to do. There needs to be an investment in training people to get to that point. 
Do you know what I understand? Like, yes, there's absolutely. an awful lot of young people in their 20s, and I know because I have one, right. who, uh, who graduated from university and all of that, and, and all of their friends, all that age group are complaining that they can't get entry level jobs. Yeah. Like, they can't get on the ladder it's because like- instead, employers are looking for people who are fully trained. Well, how do you get there? You have to invest in people early. Yeah. There was a meme that went around on Reddit for a long time that it was like, here's the entry level job posting. And right at the top, it's like minimum two years experience. How is that an entry level job? That is not an entry level job. So there is a a gap in expectation from employers right now is that they don't want to spend that. They want somebody to come in and hit the ground running. Well, no, no, a little bit of investment is going to give you a long-term employee. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that that is one thing that I feel like our company is doing well. Oh my God. Oh, stop, Scott. <laughs> Scott, we get it. You're happy to be here. Scott, thank you for that. You're welcome. That is our Scott Jets. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, of all the things that might help us fight overdoses, could it come down to something like when people have access to money? Like if people are receiving income assistance, they receive it once a month. It's always been that way. And everyone gets it on the same day. It's known as check day. But what if that changed? What kind of a difference might that make? Well, Dr. Lindsay Richardson is a research scientist with the BC Centre on Substance Use and associate professor in the Department of Sociology at UBC and joins us now. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to be with you. What kind of a difference could it make if we changed the, the schedule like that? Well, I think with any policy change, there's potential for complexity. Right? We know that the existing system produces harm, and if we explore other systems, we need to explore the consequences that they might have. And our research has looked at this question, and what we found was the answer is actually quite complex, in that you know, we might be able to uh, reduce the likelihood that people increase their use around payment times, but there might be other harms that emerge because not everyone is on the same system. Right. Okay. Well, let's start with what we know here, because we know that overdose deaths generally spike after income assistance payments are made. That's true. Uh, The data from the coroner's office from 2017 to 2022 uh, was publishing uh, that data. They were publishing the difference between average illicit toxicity deaths per day during a regular week and comparing that to the average during payment week. And during that period, we know that on average, uh, overdose mortality was about 20 to 40% higher during payment weeks. Okay. And has the idea of an alternative payment schedule ever been explored? Has there been a study done on that? Yes. We, we led a study. It was an experimental study that uh, collected data between 2015 and 2019. And we examined what would happen, for example, if you split people's payments into two payments and if you varied when they were paid so that it wasn't everyone all at the same time. And what happened? What we showed was that people's likelihood of increasing their drug use around payment time, something that we know happens in the community already, was a lot lower for people on an alternative schedule. But we also know that other harms, such as exposure to violence or perpetration of violence, uh, while while it was less common, those things showed a potential signal of, of increasing in the study. And so what we know is there's a lot of violence in the community already, and managing people, manage, people managing their resources really affects their uh, vulnerability to violence. So 
for example, if I had resources and you didn't, and we were in a situation of scarcity, the, the likelihood of violence potentially increases. Um, managing drug debts happens in a, in a particular way that, that can increase violence as well. And so what we learned from the study is that standing out from the regular system, which our participants did, matters. And it matters in potentially really important ways. So what is the, the holdup then in giving people the right to choose? Like if people say, I would feel better if I got the money in two installments twice a month, like w- what is the holdup for that? Well, that is the system that we recommended as a result of the study because people's financial management varies significantly and having a one-size-fits-all that system, which is what we have right now, doesn't necessarily represent the best option. And the provincial government has a digital interface. Most people are handling their relationship with the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction through a website. And so the infrastructure that could allow for people to individualize their payments could be done through that system. And I think it is a real question of thinking about how do you make that system work for the most people possible, right? So it's not just people who use drugs but receive income assistance. There are a lot of people that do. And could an individualized system work well for everyone? I think, uh, I think that's a real possibility. And I think uh, you know, we've had conversations with the ministry on an ongoing basis. Uh, and so my hope is that there is a bit of an appetite for thinking about things differently and making that happen. It just makes sense, though, doesn't it, Dr. Richardson? Like, even even anybody, even the average person, like, I don't, I wouldn't want to get my money in one big lump sum every month because, yeah, you'd have this big amount of money sitting there, and the temptation is that you're going to spend it. Yeah, most most people are not paid once a month. Most most people are paid twice a month, and so I do think that that is an intuitive solution. I think, uh, you know, intuitive solutions have often complex implementation, and my hope is that 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 consideration will be considered moving forward. Okay, so what are what is the likelihood then? You said you've talked to the ministry about this. Is this something that is under consideration? Uh, I mean, I can't I can't speak for what's going on in internal conversations at the ministry, but uh, they haven't said no. I'll say that much. Okay. Now, can we talk about what happens to the drug supply then around the day that people around the check day, so to speak, when that day is coming? What happens to the drug supply? Did your study look at that? Uh, our study looking at uh, varied payment timing and frequency didn't look at that, but we've conducted uh, other studies. I've collaborated with uh, uh, some uh, scientists that look at what's going on in the drug supply. And what we found was that around payment days, there are changes in the composition of the drug supply. You know, so at the time that we looked at the data, uh, there was an increase in the level of benzodiazepines in the drug supply uh, around payment days. But what we know is that the drug supply isn't static, right? It changes a lot uh, in a really short period of time. And so, um, you know, that was a particular snapshot in time. But if you think about it from the perspective of someone who is dealing drugs, you can understand why there might be motivation to vary the concentration of your drugs or what's in them. Uh, If you have a, a large group of people with an influx of money at a particular time of the month, you have uh, an interest in potentially uh, decreasing the potency or uh, managing the drug supply that you're putting out there differently. And so um, those variations in the drug supply potentially have a role to play uh, in drug-related harm. 
Uh, I'm kind of sold on this. I think you've convinced me. Dr. Richardson, thank you for your time. It's a real pleasure.